You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Hey, welcome to another edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy. Um, happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, you know, love to celebrate that. Uh, hope you guys are having a good Halloween season. It's kind of ramping up right now, as always. Joined by my spooky co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you feeling today? Oh, uh, yeah, feeling spooky. <laughs> we are, you know, we're pretty lucky to be living here in Portland where we actually get to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day officially. Yeah, absolutely. Only uh, 500 years too late, but uh, still, nevertheless, it, uh, it's the thought that counts. And um, it's important we that we are, start. We are, we are, I think, as a culture, telling some different stories than we were somewhat less brainwashed or perhaps whitewashed than than we were at one time so hopefully we can keep going in this direction it feels like it feels like there is um i like to i like to be optimistic otherwise i'm going to crawl into a hole because this year's crazy (laughs) (laughs) it is it is i gotta think that there's hope for these you know uh situations these massive systemic injustices like we show up for here with the population of folks, massive population of folks, many of them people of color that are incarcerated and in the justice system. And so lucky us that we get to do this today and uh, lift up some voices that need some lifting. No, yeah. Like we talked about last week, we're controlling the narrative. So doing our best to, to, To bring great narratives to light, right? Yeah, one show at a time. And speaking of that, uh, our guest today, really excited about this guest, is Brian Stanley, East Harlem Court Advocate for AvenuesForJustice.org. This is a cool organization. Yeah, Brian, how are you doing today? I'm great, guys. Uh, How are you guys doing? Good. Uh, Really good, actually. Um, Let me just say a little bit about Avenues for Justice. Uh, Basically, in a nutshell, for 40 years, you guys have provided an alternate or an alternative to incarceration for youth in New York City, um, which is an incredible cause, obviously. Uh, Brian, typically uh, how we start the show, because you're a new guest, we talk a little bit about maybe your upbringing, what kind of led you on the path that you're on now, and um, we go from there. So uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, I feel great about it. Uh, First, uh, just to uh, piggyback on what you guys said, happy Indigenous Peoples Day. it's uh, really important that um, that we shout that out um, because, like you said, the 500 years prior or whatever, like the other thing was being shouted and promoted heavy. Um, but uh, my background and what led me to working at AFJ. Um, so that's an interesting question because as a black person, as a person of color, right, we... Um, so many things that are seemingly simple become complicated. 
So on the one hand, you know, wanting to explain what drew my interest to working with young at-risk people, but then trying to ride that line of, am I pimping my own trauma and telling certain stories? But that being said, uh, grew up in, in New York, in Brooklyn, New York, um, in what would be called the inner city, uh, saw, experienced a lot of what that entails. Um, at 18 years old, I was, um, I was arrested and I faced some felony charges that I was able to, um, have, a probation and have the record sealed. Um, recognizing the value of that, what it's done for my life. I was able to go on to Howard University. Bye, son. <laughs> um, was able to, to, to uh, follow up that experience with going to, you know, one of the most prestigious uh, historically black colleges in the country. And so coming across AFJ, which was operating in the system to provide young people with basically that same opportunity that I had, is to recognize that this is a kid um, who might have, you know, made a kid-like judgment call um, and that their life doesn't need to be thrown away for it. Um, that's what drew me to AFJ and doing the work that I'm doing now. That's great, man. So I'm curious. I want to say just something real quick about the trauma pimping piece. Um, that's that's real. I think we have to be really careful in our conversations about how we uh, dramatize trauma for co just consumption, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I appreciate the thoughtfulness for sure. And also, I really feel like these stories are still important people hear them they see themselves in these stories mm -hmm. i mean a good story told in a way that is um that's authentic you know when you're really bringing the energy of service to the table is a story that's going to maybe be years and come out into the world and the folks that get to listen to it they take that story they consume it and it goes inside and it's able to articulate things for them that they didn't even maybe know existed or hadn't dealt with or hadn't understood even as trauma so i think our stories are a gift i mean and on Indigenous Peoples Day, of course, we have entire cultures that we've dismissed based on the fact that they're these primitive cultures that don't have written language. What they have is mythology and story. And those mythologies and stories had woven within them like all the information they needed to know about surviving on the planet. Mm -hmm. I think that the bringing back of our stories is just so incredibly valuable. Anyway, that's my soapbox about stories. So I want to say stories are awesome. Please tell yours. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, I, and that's why I was saying that it's complicated, you know, and, you know, because there's that dual consciousness. And on the one hand, it's like you said, maybe there are elements to my story or lots of elements that really connect and resonate with someone and maybe even show someone that, oh, I can follow this path or this person went through the same thing as me. So there's the value. And then there's also the other consideration. So it's never like a clear cut, easy thing. 
you know, but yeah, you, you're right. You know, the stories at the end of the day, you know, they have to be told and they are a gift. They are a gift for sure. Well, most certainly. Um, so let me just talk real quick about uh, just a few of the avenues for justice goals. Uh, number one is to intervene, uh, to divert and reclaim young people from lives of crime. Uh, mm-hmm. Number two is provide an overloaded court system with a reliable alternative to incarceration, which is what we're all about here. And number three is to make New York a safer place for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so specifically, it, one of the things that I find interesting about you is you're kind of in a unique position to help out like sp- from your personal experience and just growing up in the neighborhood and stuff like that. So I feel like it makes you a very powerful advocate for avenues for justice. Um, one thing I was reading about you is that over the last 10 years, uh, you served as a writing tutor, a basketball coach, an after-school art teacher with a focus on hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Now, me specifically, I'm a DJ in Portland, so I dabble a little bit in, in hip-hop myself. Could you uh, talk a little bit about the what the focus was when you were an after-school art teacher on, on rap music and hip-hop? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's uh, that, was, that was a great um, experience. So, you know, I um, spent many years uh, writing rhymes, performing as an MC, um and i grew up deeply entrenched in hip-hop culture and uh hip-hop it taught me so many things um and um also there were there was these connective threads to um indigenous culture going way back you know the use of the, the drum and you know even what meg was speaking of that that oral tradition right and so um I, I, I kind of used hip hop to sort of get young people in uh, in touch with those ideas even about, hey, when you hear these things, you know, this is actually like, you know, your people going way back, right? And this is this thing that's transforming and it's a way to share information. You can, you know, this is CNN, you know, this is, your how-to, uh, you know, cookbook slash such and such for dummies. Uh, this is, uh, you know, lift your spirits. Um, this is, uh, it's math, you know, uh, learning how to write in four or four time and all of these things. And so um, I, I focused on really uh, just kind of connecting them to uh, the, the universe of hip hop, I guess you would say. Absolutely. So what kind of art were you doing? So uh, I was doing a uh, visual art, drawing, painting, graffiti, um, kind of having a similar, similar sort of thread, which is uh, tapping into the talents and the expression that young people were already using and, ex- and trying to show them uh, that it was legit and um, to how to legitimize it within yourself. And so, uh, you know, we would, um, we would do shows. We would have exhibitions, gallery shows uh, for kids that were doing graph, doing uh, graph work. Um, kids who were poets, you know, having them um, write their stuff out visually. How, how do you present this poem visually? Um, and understanding that they're different ways to present uh, your art and that that's an art in and of itself. So uh, we would do like 
we would uh I, the classes were in Hillcrest High School out in Queens and um so then yeah we would like rent spaces and whatnot and have them put on shows and invite their people out sell their stuff AFJ uh that's where I'm at now as a court advocate um and AFJ does have pretty well-rounded programming. There's definitely uh, like some art enrichment stuff uh, and uh, some art therapy. Um, I'm not directly facilitating those those things uh, here. I'm, I'm really working uh, as a court advocate and sort of like a mentor and case manager for uh, for the participants. So let's say uh, hypothetically, you know, I'm a I'm a juvenile in New York, and I find myself in the just in the legal system. And uh-huh. um, what what's the process of like? How do you how do I become introduced to you? Do you like? Is there a platform where you reach out to me, or is there yeah. a specific kind of community organization? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, we um we connect with young people in a variety of ways. Um, we get a lot of referrals from legal aid so obviously young people by and large can't afford lawyers paid lawyers so they have court appointed lawyers uh our office our main office is actually located inside of the court building which has been a blessing they donated that space to us um, because um you know the reputation of angel rodriguez who founded the organization built up um he has he built up that kind of cachet. So us being in the building, we're able to form really solid relationships with uh, legal aid as well as judges. Uh, probation is on the floor beneath us. So um, so a lot of times they'll refer someone to us. Um, we'll interview them and go through seeing if they're fit. We also do lots of community outreach. So there's a Lower East Side Center and team and then there's a harlem center and team and uh so myself um and and my colleague now nora mitchell uh we go into harlem community board meetings variety of organizations churches um and just talk to people about our organization um we have relationships with high schools so we get referrals from all over the place I mean, this is such an incredible just organization and opportunity for children. I know when I was young going through the legal system, man, if I ever had any kind of mentorship, you know, you when you're going through it, you kind of feel like you just lost, you know, like all this stuff is happening. You don't understand any of it. It's all these new rules and all this new like make-believe nonsense. And by the time you're just kind of absorbing it and kind of getting the hang of it, it's already kind of too late. You know, like you said, um, our, our youth of today, there's no way they can afford legal representative, I mean, competent legal representative representation. And, uh, you know, unless they have parents that are just putting the bill and stuff like that, but even then it's so rare. And I read that, um, it's about 25 to 50% of uh, the youth released from New York juvenile facilities stay out of prison. And that number goes up to 95% of avenues for justice graduates stay out of prison. That's incredible to me. Um, that's correct. What, what would you attribute to that? So the the number one thing that I would attribute to it is them not going to prison or jail in the first place. 
um, all of the statistics and studies on recidivism uh, pretty clearly illustrate that jail and prison is really like a crime incubator. And so, you know, it's not that, it's, it's really not complicated. If you want people to do well and be productive, then you want them in, in environments that encourage that. And where that's what the, the energy they're surrounded by. And if you put them somewhere else, young, impressionable people, then they're already at that deficit. Then when they come to us, as opposed to uh, serving some sentence, the other thing is now we get to really addressing, okay, what what is actually going on with you and what help do you need, right? Like to, to go forward in life, because like I can call you every night for curfew and make sure you sign a list that you came to the center every day and you fulfill that. And then after your six months and the judge says, okay, you did it, you go on, but your problem isn't solved. So, so AFJ, we, we, um, we work, uh, really uh deeply with each client um we have like very personal uh relationships with them the court advocates a lot of organizations difference between us and a lot of organizations is they'll have separate positions so there's a court advocate that literally will go to your court dates with you and talk to your lawyer and sort of translate for you then there's like a mentor slash youth worker who works with you and then they report to the court advocate and so on and so forth. With us, it's we we do it all. So like I'm doing community outreach. So literally, like I may have been the guy that like went to your school, and then when they referred you to us, then I'm your court advocate. I am your youth worker. And so there's a different level, I think, of accountability and credibility we get uh, with them. And we also, um, we maintain relationships with our young people um, beyond when they've uh, completed the program. Talk more about that. I'd be curious what that looks like, because this is amazing for you to be able to do all of those pieces rather than this young person having these different moving parts. You can develop a really deep mentor-like relationship with these kids. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I think it's all like the brainchild of Angel Rodriguez, really, and him understanding that uh, these kids, their their problems, it's it's a whole life context that put them in this position. And so it's going to take a similar thing to uh, direct them somewhere else. And so um, and, and, and so in this approach. I think that, like I said, there's a, a credibility that we build. And so first of all, the average, the average participant is with the program for probably about a year as an, like an intensive client. And then they transition to like preventative or supportive. And so, um, for three, four, some people, 10 years, after the fact, they really maintain a relationship with us. They'll come to us for job resources. Um, if someone, their, their legal situation is totally resolved, but they're trying to get into school, then um, they'll come to us and they'll call their court advocate. Um, and so 
I think that that also is a huge part of what allows us to, to really be successful. Having somebody that cares about you, that you can count on, that is a, a good role model, a solid role model, that is such powerful psychology right there, just to help someone feel like they have two feet on the ground and they can keep on stepping. For sure. For sure. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, not even that. Uh, just someone that's actually been there that's closer to your age group uh, that grew up in a similar area that you did. I mean, it's just so much more powerful than these other organizations. You know, I'm not going to say names, but like it, it yeah. just really is the most effective man- method of doing this, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I, see, I see kids around Harlem sometimes. They'll run into me somewhere and then uh, I'm not dressed like I'm going to court. And then they're like, oh, Mr. Brian. And they're like, yeah, Mr. Brian is out here. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, but it's but it's true, and, and then like you said, it they know they they can relate and connect. So it, you know, it's it, it definitely helps. Yeah, it's just such fulfilling work. I feel like, and you know, I, I'm kind of surprised that there's not more uh, just organizations like this nationwide. I mean, honestly, I understand New York is a, you know one of the biggest cities in America, and you know when there's more things to kind of spring up organically like that, but like. I just don't understand, especially for today's youth and juveniles and stuff like that, why this isn't more of a mainstream thing. Like, it just seems like it saves so much money and time and, you know, just the buildup this all takes without this. Just imagine, I mean, we're talking double the amount of people that are not going back to juvenile facilities or or big facilities. I mean, uh, the calculation on that amount of money that saves taxpayers and just the amount of heartbreak that saves families and communities, you can't even measure that, so... Uh, it is absolutely amazing how much the powers that be, the powers that be will pay and take from constituents in order to keep racism, basically racism and classism alive. It's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely backwards. Oh man, Meg, it's, 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 I'm so glad that you touched on that because one of the uh, major debates that I get into and that I've um, like argued with a lot of people about uh, is people saying that racism and other forms of oppression um, are uh, tools of capitalism. And I vehemently disagree. I think that capitalism is a tool of those things. And, and because, and it's, and it's very obvious because these are people, these are, if these people have managed to take the level of control over the world that they have and control all of these systems, then things work in a certain way. These aren't huge mistakes. The people with a profit margin and a bottom line outlook, if you got, if you have the most fiscally conservative uh, approach, then there's no way you wouldn't be 100% for alternative to incarceration. In New York, a young person, it costs about $380,000 to incarcerate a young person for a year and to put them through avenues for justice is about $5,200. And so, so from that standpoint, you're talking about saving all this taxpayer money, right? You're also keeping this person by them not being incarcerated, not having uh, something on their record that's going to uh, hinder them from employment in the future and opportunity. That's also another taxpayer, right? That you're creating. And this is potential latent genius that this, you don't, you don't know what 
this person may contribute to whatever the Silicon Valley, this, this, and that, right? You're willing to throw all of that away and spend all of this money to do it. Then I'm, I'm not buying the capitalism. It's about money thing. It's about keeping certain people down. Protecting land and ownership. Yeah, definitely right. protecting the voting block and um, keeping certain folks in power. It's mm-hmm. harsh stuff, but um, again, like I said in the beginning, maintaining optimism. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're ma- you know we do our best, but it's it's you know it's important to name this stuff for sure. Um, so we need to take a quick ad break and pay some bills. Speaking of capitalism, <laughs> and then we'll. Uh, Do that and be right back and keep talking. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right. Welcome back to Felony Inc. Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Brian Stanley, the East Harlem Court Advocate for Avenues for Justice. The website is avenuesforjustice.org. And as always, the only Christopher we acknowledge is Christopher Wallace. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Brian, uh, also earlier in your career, you ran a center for teens that engaged Brooklyn youth in anti-violence work, uh, college, job readiness, and sexual health classes. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. You talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that was um, actually through the Police Athletic League here in New York, uh, which used to be a really strong organization. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of organizations like that have been sort of defunded in New York. And I think it's contributing to this rise in, uh, you know, different issues for young people. But so when I was with the Police Athletic League, they I worked in one of the many centers that they had around the city. And um, I was tasked with creating essentially a teen program, a teen center. And so um, it was three nights a week. Uh, We basically turned the the space over to young people and uh, were attempting to address all of the things that that were right on the horizon for them. So sex education, because they're reaching the age where this is something that they need to know about, how to protect themselves, uh, consequent, or I won't even call them consequent outcomes, <laughs> potential outcomes. Yeah, potential outcomes. Yeah, potential outcomes. Um, say, uh, college readiness and or, you know, perhaps looking at trades, um, conflict resolution, um, tutoring, then some sports programs as well. So, uh, yeah, it was myself and another young woman, Darlene Opo, um, who uh, she's a brilliant, amazing uh, teacher and artist. Uh, we put that together and had a great time. Yeah, I mean, that's dope, man. That's a really good feeling. Uh, and the thing is, especially in you know Brooklyn, uh, as is any big city, 
trying to engage the youth in any kind of anti-violence stuff seems like you're just swimming against the tide a lot of times. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a huge movement in Portland earlier this year, uh, anti-violence movement, because there was a, a big increase in gun crimes. And a lot of people jumped on board for that. But now, uh, since then, gun, gun violence has been up 300% because of, you know, coronavirus, a lot of different factors and stuff like that. But it's just like a lot of times it's a thankless uh, situation, but it's really needed. Um, there's just so much difficulty in kind of getting through to the youth. And it sounds good on one night, you know, if you're, if you're talking and you're sitting them down. But when they're back with their friends or a such crazy situation comes up, like you can't just be there all the time and look out for people. Um, right. did you have any kind of tactics or like, I always wondered what was the most effective ways in getting youth to kind of just look at a different option and kind of, you know, for, practice forgiveness, stuff like that, instead of retaliation. Well, uh, I, I, I hope this may not be as, um, concrete as what you're looking for, but my, but the first thing, uh, for me is, um, I try to be authentic with each young person um, because that's kind of what their whole thing is about, right? Their whole thing is about authenticity. Um, and so I, I try to lead with being myself, meet, meeting them uh, and presenting myself and uh, also trying to see them authentically. Um, that's the first thing. Um, then I try to speak to their pragmatic side. Um, I was a very, I was a pragmatist when I was a young person in my neighborhood like them. I've had conversations with people where, you know, I was like, well, listen, realistically, what, what's the outcome of this? You know, I'm not afraid and I know you're not afraid, but we live two blocks away from each other. We're going to see each other every day. How's this going to end one way or another? You know, however it ends, it's not really going to be good for either one of us. You know what I mean? So we got to, you know, weigh risk and reward. Um, I talk to him very real. You know, I don't speak to him the sense of necessarily morality or this is the nice, right thing to do. I try to appeal to does what you're doing, does it make sense? And what's the outcome you can expect? And do you want that outcome? Because a lot of them in the back of their mind, they know dead or in jail. They know that, right? And they've resigned themselves to it. But so once we have that conversation about what is the outcome, then we can talk about why, why are you okay with that outcome? Or why do you think you're okay with it? You know, is it that, because there's better. And also if, you know, so, cause I've had some real conflict resolution stuff. I've done like gang interventions and whatnot. Um, and also just explaining, trying to get through to them that man, life is long and you'd be surprised sometimes if you don't react so immediately, you might find out that what you were reacting to this other person, your relationship may take a whole different path. And this may end up being somebody that you come to really have respect and maybe even love for, you know what I mean? So just take your time. Yeah, so many, so many of these situations are just based on temporary, just small things. Looking yeah. back on it, it's so ridiculous, you know, uh, yeah. situations where people end up losing their lives or their, their freedom for them. Um, changing gears real quick, uh, I know that you guys are doing the fall fundraising campaign and you're trying to raise $200,000, um, but you're more than halfway there right now. Uh, for people listening, 
if you want to, I mean, this is a great cause, hundred uh, percent great cause. If you want to donate or be a part of avenues for justice, how do you go about doing that? Well, avenuesforjustice.org and the campaign is called meet the moment. And, um, so you can go on our website, uh, and all the information is there. Um, every contribution, not only is it greatly appreciated, it's really needed. It facilitates us being able to just do that much more for each participant. Um, yeah, the campaign is going well so far. People seem to really be connecting with what's going on and people are in the spirit of lending what they can, you know, whether it's their time, their money, uh, their information, um, to helping our young people. And so, yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah, so beat the moment. Basically, if you got, I'm not really sure. Do you guys accept volunteers and stuff like that as well? Or are you fit for them? Yeah. Yeah. We do accept volunteers. Um, and, uh, our activities and volunteer coordinator, uh, Johnny Jara, who you can also find his information on avenuesforjustice.org. He, um, sort of, he does like the screenings, for all the volunteers, um, speak with him about what it is that you might be looking to do, what talents or strengths you have to lend, and uh, yeah, figure it out from there. Uh, yeah, we want all the help. So let's say hypothetically, uh, someone's listening to this right now and uh, is kind of grown up in that area or, or one of the areas that you guys operate in New York and wants to become potentially a court advocate like yourself. How would they go about doing that? Uh, there's a, there's a few ways to do that. Uh, how old is this person? We talking about a young person or somebody's looking to get hypothetically, into yeah, yeah, young or old or whatever you think puts this. Uh, just this okay. question the best. Well, so uh, with with our organization, um, again, all of our information is on the website. You can literally reach out to all of us. Our emails are there, uh, bios and whatnot. And so if you um you know, have some interest, like shoot someone an email, shoot Gamal Willis, who's the manager of court advocacy, an email and talk about uh, your experiences and your interest, what you think you have uh, to bring to the table and um, and take that from there. Okay. How often do y'all hire folks that have been through the program to come back and be court ad advocates? So who, the person that I consider the superstar of avenues for justice, uh, Elsie Flores. I hope you watch it. If you're not, uh, well, you'll, you'll get to it because this is, this is recorded. So, um, Elsie, uh, came through the program. Um, and I mean, she, she was in the thick of it. She was really in the thick of it. Um, she stuck with the program. The program stuck with her. Um, today she just graduated, uh, from John Jay college uh, she's got her four-year degree. Um, she's the most dynamic court advocate that probably I've seen in any organization. Um, really connects with the kids, loves them, knows her stuff. Uh, so, yeah. That must be so powerful for the folks that she works with because she's been exactly where they are. She's been able to go through the full program. That's, That's such an amazing circle. Been. <laughs> right. Yeah. They can't tell her anything. They can't run any kind of game. She's like, listen, I did this. So don't tell me what you can't do. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's awesome. 
Yeah, everything you're doing is extremely fulfilling work. I mean, man, I would love to be doing something like that, honestly, in Portland, uh, personally. And I strive to hopefully maybe be able to be a part of that and make a difference like that one day. Uh, do you have any specific, um, I, I was reading on the website, there was a bunch of success stories um, based on graduates and people that uh, just really did well after participating in Avenues for Justice. Do you have any specific success stories to you, uh, any particular you know cases that you were a part of that you saw just uh, really that maybe stick out in your mind right now? Yeah. Um, my very first client um, who I met, I first encountered, I've been working at AFJ for about two weeks. And um, Angel Rodriguez, he's very insistent on training, 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 training before you get out into the field or whatever. He doesn't want you doing anything, right? Um, I had um, kind of snuck into the youth part uh the the that the court that is specifically for young people here um i snuck over there and was sitting in um listening to the cases i had some flyers with me so i was handing out flyers pamphlets to young people and their parents it's making them aware of the organization and i struck up a conversation with a mom and a young man who was uh, facing a gun charge. Um, again, I w- you know, supposed to not have been going out and doing intakes yet, but I just was, you know, was itching to go. Um, he became my first, uh, first client, um, had a tough situation, said was caught with uh, a loaded weapon in a bag, uh, had a mask on his face. Uh, and so, you know, it, it didn't look too good. Uh, worked with him over the course of like a year and a half. Um, showed the judge that this kid is not that kid, you know, through all the progressions from him going to school and acquiring an internship and doing really well in our program. And um, he is set to receive a youthful offender at uh, adjudication, which means that um, his his record is going to be sealed. He's not going to have this charge on his record and he's going to avoid jail time. Um, and he's such a beautiful, promising, sensitive young man. And it's like literally this fork in the road for him is like I could see him doing like amazing things over here or being swallowed up over there. And so the fact that he's going here, um, yeah, that's, that's been the, probably the one that's moved me uh, the most to date. Man, how appropriate that that was your first case too, man. You know, Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Very first one. <laughs> now, uh, I just want to say uh, rest in peace, uh, Congressman John Lewis. Uh, I was reading on you guys' website again that, People like John Lewis made it possible for Avenues for Justice to exist. You know, Avenues for Justice has been around 40 years. Uh, I was listening to something interesting on a podcast earlier this week about how in New York back in the 70s, uh, just how dangerous it was. You know, you go to see a Broadway show and you'd immediately like leave before nine o'clock before it got, you know, the situation got really hairy out there. And uh, in big part, uh, Rudy Giuliani was credited at kind of cleaning up Times Square and cleaning up the city and making a significant change. But I'm wondering how much do you think just 
you know, operations like Avenues for Justice had uh, had a hand in that, you know, in my opinion. It, it seems like about the same time that things started getting it going in a better direction is when this uh, organization came to fruition. Right, right, exactly. Well, and, well, first of all, you know, like I, I think I said before, maybe right before we got on, Tale of Two Cities, which was my favorite book growing up. And I, even though they were, rep, you know, referencing two separate actual cities, um, in New York, there's, well, there's really a, a few different cities in New York. And so the, the New York that Rudy Giuliani made safer is one New York. And then in order to make that New York safer, he made another New York more dangerous and made certain people more vulnerable. Gentrification uh, station. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, you know, um, I, as a young person, um, I, I grew up, I was a teenager during Rudy Giuliani's uh, tenure. And I mean, I was constantly harassed by the police. So were all my friends. We were assaulted also all the time. Um, and so a lot of when AFJ was really growing in prominence, this is a lot of what was going on. And thank God that there was an organization like this uh, and some others that were there to like provide some sort of support and help to young people who otherwise would be kind of railroaded under this, you know, new idea that we're the problem with the city, you know? Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, AFJ. So Elsie as well, I was telling you about, uh, she, um, yeah, grew up around that same time and around that same time, Angel Rodriguez and Nelson Valentine, who's the senior court advocate. He's been doing this for about 30 years. Uh, he was her primary court advocate. Um, yeah. And they took her under the fold, under the wing at that time. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. You know, I, I think it's always kind of like the unspoken heroes of the situation. You know, you never hear about. But meanwhile, they're still behind the scenes making like the real difference in, in society. Uh, which Sure. You know, uh, and hopefully we can continue to push and get avenues for justice out there. But you guys are doing great right now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Higher Up Initiative and what that is? Yes, yes. Higher Up Initiative. So it's, an, it's a new program that we have going where um, essentially we're looking to create bridges of opportunity for young people. So partnering with uh, corporations, organizations to select young people to mentor and then from that mentorship leading to a possible internship opportunity and then gaining that internship experience, that leading into uh, a full-time position uh, with that corporation. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's designed to have kids see, have pathways into um, just different worlds, different ways to make a living. Uh, expand their idea of, of what's possible and um, and have and not just a speech about it, like have a real life example and a person they can actually connect to and call that can sort of walk them through that. What's so crazy about New York is I, I lived in New York. My son was born in New York um, shortly after 9-11 um, is 
people don't realize this big city full of opportunity, full of people, full of art, full of culture. There are kids in New York City who never leave their city block. I was living in Brooklyn and I actually had neighbors that had never been to Manhattan. They'd lived there their entire life and they'd never lived to been to Manhattan. There's Mm -hmm. kids in Harlem that have never been to Central Park. And it's just like a subway ride away from Harlem. And they have never been to this big park or the big natural history museum that everybody's on about. There's kids that go from school to grandma's house to home or whatever and have these couple of stops and every couple of blocks kind of has all of the services that you need to keep a life going. So it's amazing just to mention how, you know, how growing up in New York city, while this podcast gets broadcast all over. So folks may think of New York city as an incredible place to grow up. That's full of opportunity for many kids. It can be the smallest of small towns, the tiniest place ever, Mm -hmm. an incredibly limited set of options. And that can exist for a lot of people everywhere. But I think it surprises some folks that it exists in New York. And it's amazing that a group like avenues for justice, I mean, just like what you're saying, this, this program about helping kids see a pathway. I mean, there's so much power in just cracking open a perspective and saying, you know, there's, there, here's an option. Here's a way. Take my hand. Let me hold the flashlight or whatever, right? right. It's incredibly powerful. Oh, man, Meg, you hit it on the head when you were talking about, first, I, I know so many people just like that who, you know, like I said, I grew up in Brooklyn and I knew people who had never been to Manhattan. That never. shocked me so much when I lived there. <laughs> yeah, it's a real thing. And, it, you know, and it's like there's so many um, experiments and whatnot, right, that, that we've been made aware of where we know we learn about like psychological programming, where once you program something uh, deeply enough, then there doesn't need to be any physical barrier. Right. The, the, the person or the animal or whoever it is, that entity, if they whatever they believe is off limits to them, you know, or it doesn't even occur to them that that's for them. You know, it's like a force field. So like with AFJ, some of the things that we do with our like we partner with an organization called Wide Rainbow, which is um, like an arts enrichment and exposure program. And so like they just took our young people to museums, right? And had them meet artists. These were kids that had never been inside a museum. And if they had, they didn't get any one-on-one time with an artist, you know, and, and having a conversation with them, right? Where it's like, yo, this space is open to you. This is not off limits to you. Um, you know, we went to simple stuff that tourists take for granted. Going to the Statue of Liberty, Right. This thing that you're looking at off in the distance your whole life. Right. And then but for some reason, you've never been there. You've never gotten on this ferry. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, wow. So this. Yeah, I really can go here and I can go up to the top. And, you know, it, it's it might sound small, or almost ridiculous to people that can't connect to that idea. But it's very real. It's very real. 
Yeah, everything. And it, those kind of things, they take time, they take money, they take a particular set of, like you said, these sort of habituated ways of being. So if you're not habituated to just jumping on the subway and going and figuring out how to catch the ferry and, mm-hmm. and believing that this is a thing that you will enjoy, that's for you, that will feel comfortable. These are all huge barriers to folks getting out of that particular very small set of pro set of programmed ideas. Right. That's so awesome. I love that you guys are, are taking people doing the museum stuff. Museums are notoriously entrenched in elitist culture and it's really great to open them up. I think that's kind of a movement. I see it here in Portland with our museum is these movements to open this place up, you know, art is for everyone. Art doesn't have to be this, this, uh, Oh, I, you know, like people think they have to know a lot of things to drink and discuss fine wine or something, or that that somehow that has a virtue or an intelligence to it when it might just be plain snobbery, you know, not that there's not some value there, but also there's some not value there. Same with art. You know, you can walk around an art museum and, and have a heck of a time. You can laugh, you can, you know, figure out if you can find your favorite TV stars, doppelgangers on the walls of the religious mm-hmm. art. You know, there's a lot of ways to enjoy it without the nose in the air. Like I have, you know, you have to know something about art. We got to yeah. bring this back to the people. I mean, it's really fantastic. That's powerful work. Agreed. So I just wanted to touch one more time on the higher up initiative. Um, you know, I would obviously, I really am a big, uh, I think that if you can believe it, you can achieve it type thing. So the closer you are to seeing and touching it, the more it's within your, your grasp of uh, realistically um, you know, being there for you. Uh, if you, let's say hypothetically, uh, if you're in the New York area, let's say you're on like an architecture firm or a marketing company, something like that, how could you as a company owner or a participant be part of this higher up initiative? Email me at bstanley at avenuesforjustice.org and uh subject high up <laughs> and uh let me know uh what it is that you're looking to do uh you can call me at 917-224-1556 uh, <laughs> we, um also uh nora mitchell who's in mitchell at avenuesforjustice.org uh we're the point people um for this initiative and uh yeah let us know about uh what sort of business you're in um we, what sort of uh, resources do you have? I, like, how many people do you have in your organization, for example, that maybe will be looking to participate? Uh, we gauge, you know, what your level of experience maybe in mentorship is, and then sort of appropriately match people based on that. Um, or we can sort of customize the partnership to to work for whatever it is that you have to offer. And, you know, wherever our kids can meet you. Um, yeah. And that's great, man. It's, that's a real, like, you know, teach a man to fish type situation, you know? That's so. it. That's it, brother. And I, I'd and be I really, all over that if I had a business in New York right now. Well, it's just sentiment. And the, and the platform, the platform to tell people about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm glad that we're able to just kind of help push this along for sure. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to go back on is you were talking about kind of the, I was kind of curious with the coronavirus and stuff. I know being a juvenile in the courts, um, what you guys are doing is so significant because like you were saying, hypothetically, 
uh, actually not hypothetically, like a real situation was the kid was caught with a ski mask and a money bag and a pistol. And uh, you were there to advocate for him. And there's so many cases where that's not the case. And they're just there by themselves. And maybe their own family doesn't even show up to support them because they're disappointed or whatever the situation might be. And a right. judge will completely go in a different direction because of that. So right. what you're doing is just, um, honestly, it's amazing. Um, and it's really powerful work. Uh, just out of curiosity, with the coronavirus, has that slowed down the case log? Like, is it less, do you have less court dates coming up? Is this, yeah, they're spaced out more now? Or is everything going the same still? So, uh, yeah, actually, uh, for a long time, all of the cases were just being adjourned to later dates. It was a sort of wait and see going yeah. on. So it's like, if you had a date in March, it's like, okay, we'll adjourn it to April and see what the situation looks like in April, then adjourn it again. So now, um, we're just starting to really go back to court on a frequent and consistent basis. But um, it'll be interesting to see what happens because uh, in the New York Daily News and a couple of other outlets, they published some pieces talking about how incredibly high risk the court buildings are uh, in terms of susceptibility to the virus yeah. um, now. And so... We'll, we'll see what happens. But as of right now, so I, I've got um, I've got a case tomorrow. I've got another one on Thursday. I'm you know, I'm not sure for myself how I want to handle that. You know, speaking of when you were talking about things being like real life, real world, um, you know, my mother, my mother, Charlene Neely, uh, actually passed of COVID-19 on April 12th of this year. And so um you know, I'm, I certainly take this very seriously and, um, you know, I'm a father and so, you know, I, I don't want to jeopardize myself and compromise myself and infect young people. I don't want so many of our young people live with grandmas and whatnot. And so we have to figure out how we're going to navigate uh, bringing them back to court now. Absolutely. I'm sorry to hear that, man. My, uh, my grandmother, just passed away three weeks ago in uh, Chicago from COVID-19 too. Oh man. So I'm on the same page, but yeah. same here, man. My condolences. This, this thing is really touching everyone, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you know anything about going to court and stuff like, man, a bunch of people lined up going through metal detectors, taking lunch breaks, going out and restaurants are like some of the most just it, the majority of people that are catching it, are catching it from restaurants now is what I read. So you get a lunch and then all coming back to the metal detectors, all going to your different things, all staring in the same elevator, using the same bathrooms. Like courthouses could be an excellent breeding ground for COVID for sure. Right. And in New York, I mean, you're talking about there's basically 10 million people here every day. Um, and if you're in the main court building, there's literally people from every area and every walk of life in the same building sharing these same things every day. Um, and then the building is old, so the ventilation system, none of none of it is really, uh, it's all far from ideal yeah. dealing with a situation like this. Yeah, and this is like some brand new futuristic courthouse, like. Yeah, which that this is. This is a historic old building, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Gangs I hope you're wearing an N95, Brian. I, I'm triple masking it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so Brian, uh, just 
we got to start wrapping the interview up, unfortunately. But uh, where would you like to see yourself, like in ten years from now, and uh, where would you like to see the organization? Uh, ten, so first, I'm gonna speak on the organization. Ten okay. years from now, I'd like to see this model um, expanded and in cities across the country, um, and if and if not AFJ specifically then the methodology and whatnot being sort of shared, whether it's like, um, you know, we do almost trainings um, and setting up organizations, uh, other places. I think that um, the, the, the model of AFJ has a potential to work in lots of places. Um, so 10 years from now, that, that would be amazing to see. For myself, um, 10 years from now, um, I would probably have an organization of my own um, that is um, hopefully addressing some of these issues at an even earlier stage. Um, we're dealing with, we, we deal with young people ages 13 to 24. Um, and while that's early in life, there's still, there's so much that has occurred by then. Um, so like to be sort of interceding a little bit earlier and providing uh, some resources, uh, decolonized schooling for one. Yeah. yeah, now decolonized schooling would be a huge one. Um, yeah. yeah. And I'll just go ahead and say out loud, Dick I always, always asks that question and I love to say, how about in 10 years we no longer have police in prisons? Mm. Maybe if I say it out loud enough, you know. Let's keep putting it in the universe. I'm going to keep throwing it out there that Avenues for Justice does this big pivot to take care of folks that have been through the justice system and healing generational trauma from what used to be as we step into this brave new world of folks getting proper mental health healthcare treatment and addiction treatment. And maybe even those things are less prevalent. Hey, you yeah. visionary. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I, I dig it. Yeah, I'm 100% with it. Yeah. Um, man, on that note, uh, thank you so much, Brian, man. Uh, loved having you as a guest. Would love to have you back on sometime. That's cool with you. Um, yeah, man, my pleasure. It was great talking with you guys. Yeah. This uh, is really good. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Once again, the website is avenuesforjustice.org. Also looking into the Higher Up Initiative. We'll be looking forward to seeing how that trans transpires here pretty soon. And Sandra, higher up. Oh, <laughs> indeed, man. Uh, once again, people listening, happy, I hope you have a happy Indigenous Peoples Day. And remember to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific time on StartupRadioNetwork.com. And we'll see you next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.